House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. David Karate Martino is here. <laughs> I am here. How you doing? Oh, you, you, good. You, and you got what? What happened? You got you know, the weekend. You did all that uh, kung fu yeah. and stuff, eh? Like yeah, you know. fourteen hours of uh, stick fighting and <laughs> all that stuff. So, sounds like something I would. No, that's uh, that's something I do, but different. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> but that's crazy. I, so you, that's great. Uh, and you got some sort of a, um, I see certificate that you're putting all over the internet. Oh yeah. Well, I got, uh, we get a certificate for doing the 14 hour training and I got my first level in the, um, in the system that this one teacher teaches. Oh, is that, is that like one of those, they give an award to everybody? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the certificate for, uh, for being there. But yeah, you we, you can go up and and basically you're testing for for your first ranking. Yeah, within within a system. So everybody gets an award. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, understand that. Know. Yeah, why not? Well, today we are going to talk true true crime, and we're going to talk about the um, man with a killer smile, and it's uh, the life and crimes of a serial mass murderer. Volume 13 of the North Texas Crime and Criminal Justice series. So it sounds like something you're, you're, you, you've done. So, um, well, anyway, uh, let's welcome Mitchell P. Roth to the show. Thank you. Mitch, so what's going on here? You've been writing, uh, about this serial killer. How did you come across this, this, this story? Well, that's, that's the more interesting, uh, element to it. Uh, about 25 years ago or 20 years ago, uh, I was teaching a class on serial homicide and mass murder, and I had a student tell me that he was related to the fifth white person uh, electrocuted in Texas who was also a mass murderer and a serial killer. And, you know, I told him, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> well, he won the Nobel Prize. So, um, so anyway, I said, do you have any family papers or documents, which I usually will do, and he said, well, actually, we do have some research that we've compiled. I said, can you make me a copy of it? And this is a long time ago. And um, so he did that for me. He actually uh, made a copy, and I've held on to it for like 20 years, waiting for, you know, in between books that I was working on at the perfect time. And, uh, you know, and this was kind of my pathway uh, to doing the research, which I started um, right before the uh, epidemic started, I went up to uh, the panhandle of Texas and to a courthouse and got the trial transcripts and visited all the uh, places uh, from the, the crime spree. And uh, fortunately, I was able to write it over the COVID break. Uh, and, uh, you know, so a lot of serendipity there. And um, that's and I think that the most important element of it is no one's ever written about this guy. I mean, uh you know, he's not in any of the compendiums by Harold Schechter or, or anybody else um, of mass murder and serial killers. And uh, yet he, you know, he killed 13 people over a nine-year period. And, uh, you know, I've kind of added him or reinvigorated him, um, returned him to uh, his proper place among uh, the degenerates of the world. Well, that was nice of you. 
Um, well, I wonder why they they nobody's really caught him before. I guess just not heard of. Well, I think because of where it took place, it took place you know out in the you know the high plains um, uh, near near uh, Clovis, New Mexico. Uh, very sparsely populated, not a lot of newspapers and that sort of thing. It was covered pretty heavily at the time, but there were some other murder cases going on in the uh, 1920s that, you know, basically, uh, you know, got the this most of the coverage. And um, I think part of it, too, is they it took a while for them to discover that he had committed a mass murder nine years earlier. And that wasn't until right before he was executed. And so, uh, you know, he might be part of the DNA of that area, uh, area up in the panhandle, but, you know, nobody else really uh, is that familiar with him. Wow. So what's, what's the basic premise of this? Now, first of all, this was back in the uh, 1920s? Right, right. The, uh, he was caught in 1926 and executed in 1928. Wow. They did that fast back then. Yeah, and this was after a year of appeals. <laughs> and, and actually, he's buried about you know a hundred feet from my uh, office in the, the Texas Prison Cemetery. Wow! Do you go visit him then, or? Uh, yeah, I, I pay homage to him from time to time. So, so what do you? What did you find out about him? Like, what was there anything special or different about him, or was he a pretty normal guy? Well, the more I learned about him, um, the, the more he kind of fit into the psychopathy that you find with so many other um, serial killers, and uh, I should say family annihilators as well. And, uh, you know, and I found that everything, there have been, you know, book chapters and things written about him, and even in the family, uh, you know, records, I found most of what they had uh, was misinformation, and uh, I was able to kind of fix that through, you know, research through, you know, ancestry sites and um, archives and things like that. Uh, but what I th found interesting was that he, you know, went to prison at an early age, like 17, 18, for embezzlement. And for about two years, he was on all of the different farm units in Texas, you know, uh, turpentine farm, cutting sugar cane, all these miserable jobs. And I'm sure that didn't help his outlook on society. And by the time he got out, you know, he was warning, you know, all young people not to go to prison because you know what happens in prison. So he, you know, didn't quite, um, you know, get to the point. But I have a feeling that he was, you know, physically abused um, quite a bit. So his name is George Jefferson Hassel, right? Right, right. And um, so now what was his situation when, when he was doing these mass murders? Was he working? Did he have a family? Did he... Uh... What, what was going on in his life? Well, he was a—he pretty much was a laborer. You know, he had different types of jobs, like working, uh, like an, on an oil pump, working uh, as a farmer. You know, you know, just basically uh, transient jobs, um, which you find with you know some uh, mass murders and serial killers that move about. What makes this case so um, different is that he committed two mass murders, you know, nine years apart. And if you, according to the FBI definition of serial homicide, two murders with a cooling off period makes him a serial killer. Um, he also had a couple of murders in between. But here we have the murder, multiple mass murder, serial murder, family annihilator. And one of the things I found that was interesting was that all of his, uh, he didn't share DNA with any of his victims. He killed uh, 
uh, a wife and three stepchildren. Then he killed another wife and eight stepchildren. And in between, he uh, probably killed his last wife's former husband, who was his brother. And uh, so uh, you know, I, I wrote to John Douglas, and, and he told him, I said, you know, could I call this guy a serial mass murderer? And he goes, yeah, I guess so. And uh, he wrote a nice blurb for my book, by the way. Um, and, uh, you know, he kind of fills a uh, niche uh, that not many people can claim to fill, you know, 13 victims, two mass murders um, over a nine-year period. And there's probably other victims that we don't know about. He always kind of hinted at that. Were there any signs of that he'd become a mass murderer in his childhood or teenage years? Well, not really. I mean, he didn't have uh, – I mean, he was beaten by his father, he claims. Uh, his mother was always smacking him around for you know, violating, violating biblical scriptures and that sort of thing. But he was out on his own in his teens. And uh, he pretty much just, you know, was, you know, he had very poor impulse control, which often is a sign of, you know, uh, kind of a lack of prefrontal cortex activity uh, in the brain. Uh, but he kind of, he didn't plan for anything, what he was going to do for a job. You know, and, and this, I guess, you know, explains why he ended up in jail so many times. And he could never explain why he killed um, the families. You know, he said with his first wife and the three kids, it was a common law wife, um, that we were just as happy as can be in bed, you know, cuddling and everything. Then I grabbed her by the throat and strangled her. You know, I can't understand why I did it. And then I decided I would go kill the kids as well. And they're little children in the next room. And... uh over time, he came up with other explanations. He said the kids were getting on his nerves, and, you know, any parent can understand that. And, uh, and also, too, he thought she was stealing money from him. I mean, you know, he's so full of these stories, it's hard to tell um, or substantiate some of his claims for stories uh, that you find in this book. And he was living under an assumed name uh, in California, and so... Right after killing the first family, he buried them under the house they were living in and told all the neighbors that they had gone to Australia or San Francisco, depending on who he was telling the story to. And he stayed in the house. He would even bring other women there for a short period of time, um, knowing that they were down below, you know, under the house. I think he kind of liked that. And uh, even later on, he would drive by the house knowing the bodies were still, you know, under the house and they had not been found. So... Anyway, he moves to, uh, he leaves the house, moves back to Texas where he was from. He was from the uh, Fort Worth, Dallas area, born in 1888, same year Jack the Ripper was busy. And, um, and so he, he moved to his brother's farm, which was just in, uh, in Oklahoma. And uh, anyway, they had a big family. He was a farmer. He was relatively prosperous, you know, for the 1920s. And the, the brother and um, George were in a corral one day, and the brother died being kicked by a horse. Well, George was the only witness, and you got to believe that he probably killed um, the brother. And then he decided he'd marry the wife, his former, you know, sister-in-law, and take over the kids. And pretty soon, uh, I think the neighbors were talking, and they moved to Texas, because, and he lived under his own name. And, uh, you know, it was about a year later, uh, 
one night he decided uh, she was complaining about his drinking. Uh, he always had alcohol out in the, uh, you know, in the barn. And he, a lot of uh, journalists refer to him as the Jekyll and Hyde killer, you know, and the alcohol was the potion that he took. Because before each of these murders, he apparently drank some alcohol. And uh, she was complaining about that. But what, the worst part of his story, though, is he had uh, sex and had impregnated two of his nieces who became his stepdaughters. And they were underage. Uh, one of them gave birth to a child. And, of course, that, you know, went over real big. And uh, she moved out. And she was the only child in the family to survive. But she moved to California with the baby. Uh, but the most recent person he, uh, was uh, a 15-year-old uh, 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 niece, and he had impregnated her. And uh, the wife started hassling about that, hassling about the booze, and he just had enough. So he decided to strangle her and the two-year-old that was laying in bed with them, and then just go room to room um, this evening, that one evening and killing uh, the rest of the kids. And, and so nobody noticed, like neighbors or police or family or anything like that? Well, you know, the thing is, is that uh, all the people, because he stayed there, he, he told them these cock and bull stories. You know, they moved up to Oklahoma. Uh, they didn't like the school system here, this and that and this. And uh, people began to wonder about it because uh, they had seen two of his kids digging a pit near the house. And they didn't need this pit, like a storm cellar for storing goods, because they already had one. And his explanation um, before he was going to leave of why he filled it up was, uh, you know, well, we just didn't need it. When, when in actuality, that's where the bodies were all buried, like 10 feet from the house. And uh, one of the things that happened is right before he left, I mean, he was a very um, greedy type of guy. He had a, a huge, um, well, he had an auction of all of his farm tools and you know, everything, and it was widely publicized, and, and he was working at the auction. You had hundreds of people there, and the auction was being held over the grave where his family was buried. And um, so anyway, a couple of the women that were there, they didn't believe what George was telling them. They'd gone to Oklahoma, and he was going to follow them. So they snuck into his house, basically, and they found a lot of um, gear that they would have taken with them if they had gone up to Oklahoma, children's clothes and toys and Bibles and things like that. And uh, they reported all of these uh, suspicions to their husbands, and they reported them to the local sheriff. Um, and, uh, and this was in Farwell, Texas. And they got on the case. They questioned him. Um, and they were trying to figure out, well, if he killed them, and, you know, where would they be? And... Uh, it wasn't. It was within a month they had discovered that the bodies were right near the house. Wow! So, was I guess he was a pretty well liked person then in the neighborhood generally. Well, he was very charismatic. Um, you know, he. You know, the reason I titled the book "The Man with the Killer Smile" is because his smile was so disarming, and plus, his, he had nice teeth. I mean, he looked like a commercial. He could do a commercial today with all the fake teeth, and uh, he. Uh, like many uh, serial killers, was you know very good at knowing what to say and when to say it, um, knowing how to you know disarm people you know and uh, hide his true nature, and uh, you know very glib, and but he you know ultimately had no empathy, no remorse, and he loved telling the story of how he killed them all you know in many many interviews that he would give um, 
you know, over the year uh, before he was executed. Wow, that's just it's, it's crazy. Did he did he have supporters? No, no, and, and, you know, absolutely none. In fact, he tried to get a change of venue. Um, but, you know, he felt like, you know, these murders were taking, taking, took place in Farwell, Texas, and, uh, he needed three people to sign, um, th- these forms, and the only person that signed the form was him, and, uh, and that wasn't enough. So obviously they had a trial there. And, um, but, the, you know, he was vilified, you know, universally. And, uh, you know, people, of course, later on said they suspected this, suspected that, but, you know, he was, you know, you know, a, a chameleon. Well, he was in the military. What was his uh, What was his record like? I don't know if there was a record at the time, or you know, did he have problems in the military? How did that work for him? Well, this is this is kind of an interesting aspect of his life too. So, you know, uh, on the spur of the moment, um, after you know, he ki- he joined the navy, and uh, and then he deserted from the navy very quickly afterwards. Then he joined the army and deserted very quickly. And he did these under two different names. And then when World War I broke out, he just tried to join the Navy again uh, under his real name. And uh, he got caught, and he ended up doing um, a couple of years uh, for desertion and fraud um, at Leavenworth Prison and in a couple of the Navy discipline centers. Um, it's not real clear, you know, how much time he did, but apparently it was a very tough experience. These were, you know, a couple of the toughest prisons in America. And, uh, you know, I think it just added to, uh, you know, the, you know, his, maybe his hatred for society um, or his just not caring. But um, I, I tried to find his record at Leavenworth. I couldn't find it. Um, the only records, prison records I was able to get were, you know, from Texas, from Huntsville. I got his records for when he was in for embezzlement and then when he was sentenced to death. He looked like a pretty big guy. Was he, was just from the pictures, was he or was that just, is that just the... Well, that, that's an, another interesting aspect. Every, every description um, that you find in newspapers and interviews, they call him a giant of a man. Um, and, uh, I, I have his prison records and it said he was just under five foot eight, which would be maybe, you know, average, you know, for that time period and that he weighed about 165 pounds. But he, when you see some of the photos, you know, I have them in the book, his hands are enormous and, um, he looked very muscular. His arms were long, very, you know, almost like a primate and, uh, you know, and he always had labor jobs, so, you know, he was a pretty tough guy, but, uh, and he, the way he carried himself, too, you know, his head tilted back, um, he perhaps gave off the, uh, you know, the feeling that he was much bigger than he was, but he, you know, he was, finally, when he was in prison, they were describing him as he loved to eat. That's the, if you hear complaints from him, it's always about not having enough food and not having enough tobacco, and, uh, you know, it almost gets to be comical, you know, uh, when you hear these interviews with him. Because uh, he won't, you know, do an interview with a reporter unless they give him a cigar or this or that. And while he was waiting in jail uh, to be sent to Huntsville, he was making doilies, these beautiful doilies in his cell and selling them so he could have money for tobacco. Wow. Now, did, did he have any family left when he was in prison? Well, he had... This is another interesting aspect. I mean, originally I titled the book um, The First Texas Bluebeard, 
um, because, as you know, Bluebeard, you know, ma uh, marries and kills a sequence of, of wives. Um, and this was the first guy ever uh, referred to as a Texas Bluebeard. Um, but uh, the editors thought that, you know, no one knows what the hell a Bluebeard yeah. is. <laughs> so I, I went with, you know, so I went without it. But he did marry right after he got out of jail for embezzlement. And he had a child with the woman. And um, it was the only biological child that we know of that he ever had. And he um, always blamed her for him going bad. He said that she left him and that, uh, you know, he never loved another woman after that. And so uh, she's the only one who escaped his clutches, essentially, uh, because he killed his next two wives. Uh, but I did some research, and right before the book was, you know, to, you know, go to the editors and everything, I was over at the uh, archives in A Austin, and I found a letter that was written 40 years um, after he was executed by his his son, uh, who had been left with the with the with the mother that is so so called abandoned him, and uh, it turns out he said that they left because he was trying to kill them. And uh, that kind of filled, you know, that missing spot there. I mean, there could have been three dead wives. And, I, I you know, I, I really, that was, you know, a lot, again, not to overuse the term, but serendipity, finding that letter in all of these files. Wow. Uh, did, it, were, were his parents dead already? Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the interesting thing is he said they died much earlier um, than they did in all of his uh, uh, interviews. And I think uh, he was trying to make it look like he was out on the road by himself much earlier. Uh, he said his mother died, the father remarried, and uh, that the next that the father's wife poisoned him. So he decided, and this was when he was still in his uh, late teens, early twenties. He decided to go to where this took place and kill the family that um, that had that had killed the father. And he got too drunk, he said, and, you know, he just kind of missed his chance to do that. But that was the first inkling that he had, that he had this in him to do that. Uh, the problem with it is, is as I researched it, um, all the, none of the dates matched. It's, you know, the father lived much longer than, you know, being so-called poisoned. There's no record of the father ever having another wife. Um, so, you know, a lot, a lot of it was just his embellishment. I mean, he had a very fertile imagination, that's for sure. Yeah, it's always, it's always hard to trust people like that in what they're saying because a lot of times they're just trying to manipulate so something out of whoever they're talking to to tell the story, you know. Right, right. Um, and he had probably killed his only brother, but he had several sisters um, that were still alive, and they actually tried to help him um, in his last days. Uh, you know, they even came to Huntsville uh, right before he was executed because they were trying to help him get an insanity defense and so forth. Um, but it, it, it appears from early on that, um, you know, he had left the family and the family was pretty much glad about that. Well, it sounds like it was a real big drama, you know, his family and everything going on. It sounds like it was all out of control almost. But was that just maybe the times and where he lived? Was that kind of common? Was his lifestyle not that far off, or was it not very normal? I, I would suspect that a lot of what he did was normal, um, except for, you know, the killings 
and uh, probably the serial desertions that he uh, committed, you know, which you can never, uh, you know, understand why he would do it like three times in a row. And, you know, they're all, you know, in pretty close proximity to, you know, the time of each one. So he was no, definitely not a master criminal, if they even exist at all. Yeah, what a, it's a, it's, what a strange story. So he got put to death then, eventually, right? Right, right, right. And, uh, it's, you know, in, in the book I talk about, uh, you know, the transition from hanging to the electric chair um, in Texas and in the United States, uh, because in Texas they introduced the electric chair in 1924, um, and they replaced hanging. And before this, uh, when people were executed, uh, they were executed in the counties where they committed their crimes and where they were convicted. But this centralized um, executions in Texas, and, and they had to make a death row in Huntsville. It wasn't there before. And so he was one of the um, you know early people on death row, and uh, he was on death row twice because they had to take him back and forth to uh, – uh, the panhandle for resentencing uh, once or twice. And uh, the, the electric chair, you know, uh, at that time period uh, was a pretty primitive looking device. And it was right down the hall from, you know, the death row. So you knew it was there. You know, the, the, the notion of the death penalty, you know, back then was that, you know, it was mostly African-Americans that were being executed. In fact, the first time they used it in 1924, they used it on five uh, black men in a row. And so they very rarely used it on, on white men. One of the interesting things I found, too, is they got rid of the gallows, you know, all over Texas, you know, in the counties, at the county jails. But in the Austin, uh, in the county that Austin's in, uh, they, the prisoners all wanted them to keep the gallows there, and they wanted permission to sleep on them <laughs> for some reason. I, don't, I never quite understood that, but maybe because, you know, uh, you know, it was a nice wooden, you know, ba barrier support, and they could sleep uh, higher up. Um, and they just weren't allowed to sleep on, you know, where the trap was, where the bodies would fall. What was his execution like? Did uh, did he have any last words or anything like that? Well, he had kind of a, you know, a couple of, of things to say. You know, basically uh, saying, uh, you know, that he was a lucky man, that he knew what his death date was, whereas everybody in that room you know, had no idea when their death would be. Um, he expressed no remorse or anything like that. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, and there was a number of people, of course, that um, observed uh, the, the uh, execution, uh, reporters and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, he, went, he died bravely. I mean, there was no whimpering or anything like that. And uh, he went pretty quick compared to some other people that had been executed. Um, about a year or two before he was executed, uh, a prison official allowed some of his friends to come with him, and they were all drunk, to go into the jail when there was an execution and witness it. And they were, like, teasing the guys being executed. It was a huge scandal in the newspapers and everything. Um, it got so bad that um, the priest wouldn't even deliver half, uh, last rites. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was... Uh, you know, a pretty awful story, but, you know, this guy had the power to, you know, decide if they were going to watch the uh, execution or not. Did any did anybody see him get electrocuted then? Or Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there were 25 people in the room. And there was just a kind of a, there's like a bar that separates uh, the spot where the person's executed. 
And the executioner is essentially the uh, warden of the Huntsville Walls unit uh, because he's the one that gives a signal uh, to pull the switch and, uh, you know, and deliver the uh, the electric power. I thought you said there, I thought you were going to be a bar there so you could have cocktails and watch. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, one that type of bar. No. I mean, that's, that's a good idea, yes. though. I'm sure people would pay. I mean, executions used to be like that where people would, you know, people would be selling alcohol and food to see a hanging, a public hanging. Um, yeah. The, I, another reason they got rid of hanging in Texas is because of lynching um, was out of control uh, in that time period. And so uh, there was too much of an association with the death penalty with extra legal or illegal lynchings on the outside. You know, it was kind of a pejorative term, hanging, and uh, they just went with the new technology. Yeah, yeah, but it would have been pretty raw, like you were saying. So they, it was just like a chair that they strapped him up and gave him a shot of electricity. I guess he probably fried. Well, I, I, you want to see a picture I don't know. of it? <laughs> I mean, I have a picture of it if you want to see. Did it you did like. you put it in the book too, or no? Yeah, oh it's God. in the book. You know, this this is. Uh, the electric chair that was used. Yeah, pretty raw. That's the first electric chair in, in Texas. I mean, uh, electrocution had been uh, instituted in New York in 1890. Uh, so they were, you know, kind of Johnny-come-lately. But <laughs> I wonder, how the did they experiment they, to figure out how much they needed, or I wonder how that kind of, how they got it to where... They had a system, you know, a chair that they, I guess they just overblasted you. I don't know. You know, it was kind of a ex experimental at first. In fact, the first person um, to be uh, electrocuted in New York was a guy named William Kemmler. And they had uh, to uh, almost barbecue him because three times they gave him what they thought was sufficient jolts. And each time he, his heart was still beating. And by the time, you know, he died, it, uh, he kind of smelled like roasting flesh. And people were like, you know, witnesses were vomiting and, you know, it was it, it didn't look good. In fact, someone said they shouldn't use the word uh, electrocution. They should say he was Westinghouse. <laughs> because the, the electric chair was the product. And I'm sure you know this, you know, of a battle for the uh, electric current of America between Edison and Westinghouse. And one of the things Edison would do was he would travel around the country and show how dangerous AC current was, which was Westinghouse's current, electrocuting animals like an elephant and dogs and, and so forth. And, uh, you know, AC was, is much more economical than DC, and it won the battle of the currents ultimately. Um, but Edison tried to portray it as being very dangerous and that, you know, Americans shouldn't use it in the household. But, you know, a lot of... Uh, There's some science that actually went into, you know, how many volts... Uh, you know, to use before, you know, the, the person was fully cooked. Uh, and there were, there, there were a number of times when someone had to be, I guess, re-electrocuted. Uh, but for the most part, it, they, they had it down pretty well. Wow. Now, were there, were there family members of victims and stuff alive still or anybody that was around to talk about that, or did they interview anybody about that, or did he just, or did he just kill everyone? No, no. I mean, the wife had a pretty uh, extended, large extended family, 
and uh, they were the, uh, the Fergusons, and they actually went to his trial and, and all of that. And one of the things they did is they wanted to ensure that he wasn't buried with, um, you know, the good people of Farwell and that he was buried um, a certain way, uh, you know, in which evil people are buried with the feet facing in one direction and the head in another. You know, we don't know if this ever came to pass. Um, but they were interviewed quite a, quite a few times. And um, one of the interesting things is I... I I met a guy uh, who was related to that side of the family, and he says he's writing a book, you know, and I asked him if he'd share some of his research. He said no. <laughs> but, um, but I found an interview he did, and he claims that um, George and his first, second wife were traveling around the country uh, doing uh, kind of bunco schemes, and he had been arrested for maybe killing someone in Chicago, you know, early on. And I, I was never able to substantiate any of that. Um, so I'm sure there's a lot, and I checked where he worked for missing people from the time periods that he was working there, like on an oil, in the oil fields in California. He worked as a chef in the Merchant Marine. Um, you know, he had a whole bunch of jobs that he did, you know, for very short periods of time. And uh, there's a lot of, there's, I found photos in the newspapers from that time of him dressed up as a chef, chef dressed up as a uh, you know, an oil field worker, you know, almost like he's trying on Halloween costumes. There's always that smile and those long uh, hands, long, large hands of his. Well, it's just, it's just a crazy story. We're, we're, it's, it's not always easy to find a good information for, for things back then, too, like going through old newspapers and stuff. It's pretty uh, inconsistent, as, how I found it anyway, when I did stuff. No, I, I, agree, I agree with that. And, um, you know, you typically have to, you know, you know, check, you know, a lot of this newspaper stories, number one, um, against, you know, other stories that you hear to see, you know, where they're the same and, and see if they're all coming from the same person. But I tended to take interviews I found with people that had come across him, like his former employers, um, you know, uh, that he had stolen from to try to help him uh, in the early days. And, you know, just other people that had come in contact with him, uh, like when he was printing his auction, the auction information, he went to a printer uh, in Farwell. And, uh, you know, he was, they're shooting the breeze with the guy and everything. And, you know, they interviewed uh, the person like 50, 60 years later. And uh, the one thing this guy remembered is that Hassel was wearing the same type of winter boots that he was wearing. When he came in, and he never wore these boots for the rest of his life, just as it reminded of him. Um, so there's a lot of secondhand stories, um, and there, there. One of the things that was very helpful, I think, when from this information my former student gave me, is his family. He had family members that went up to Farwell in the 1980s, and they were in, able to interview the, some of the last jury members from the trial, a couple of people that were actually involved in. Um, uh, exhuming the corpses uh, from the, uh, you know, from his farm. And uh, so th there was some information there that, you know, I didn't find anywhere else. And some of it, you know, I, you know, I took as, as gospel to a certain extent. But, um, you know, but that, I found that very interesting. And you got to remember, too, is right after he was arrested and put in jail for this, this killing of his family in Farwell, he uh, called the sheriff over in the jail and he said, you know, this isn't my first rodeo. I killed another family back in California in 1917. 
And so, you know, they didn't believe it. They thought it was just another case of his braggadocio. And uh, he tried to explain where they could find the house. They were under the house. And he couldn't really figure it out. But, you know, it got figured out. And uh, they they found the bodies. And in the L.A. Times, they had a picture of them digging the bodies out of this grave, you know, the mother and the uh, three kids. And so this wasn't discovered until nine years later. Everybody thought that they just disappeared, you know, to Australia or wherever they were going. Yeah, that's what they always say. Um, oh, any surprises when you were doing the uh, doing the research? Anything that you didn't see coming? Well, you know, I got off on some tangents I didn't, you know, expect to, uh, you know, get off on. Um, you know, basically talking about, uh, you know, how people lived on the Great Plains and that sort of thing, and how rare crime was. And uh, you know, I, I guess uh, the incestuous side of things. And I think the the one thing I found since I still teach about serial homicide and mass murder uh, was the fact that when you have a family annihilator, family annihilation, family murder, um, uh, tip, it's more likely to happen um, if it's step parent and step kids. Um, and also the type of killing is much more up close and personal if it's a stepchild compared if it's a child that you sired. And, uh, you know, I found some different uh, uh, comparisons and until, uh, I guess, trying to think of the guy in Arkansas that killed 14 family, Simmons, uh, 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 Gene Simmons, not Gene Simmons, Gene was his middle initial, but I'm sure the guy in Kiss would do it too. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but this guy killed 14 family members. He had impregnated one of his children, and these were all biological children. He shot them all. So we don't see, you know, the knives and the strangling and, and all of those that you see with George's uh, victims. So uh, what's next? Are you going to do another one in the same sort of thing, or are you going to kind of go somewhere different with writing? Well, you know, I, I really enjoyed working on this book, and um, there's two cases that really haven't been uh, covered a lot. Um, one was the, uh, a serial killer. Uh, I'm from Annapolis, Maryland, and I went to undergraduate school at College Park, Maryland, and uh, the serial killer in the 50s and 60s, he's known as the sex beast, um, uh, you know, committed uh, serial killings in Annapolis and College Park. And, um, you know, his name is Melvin David Reese, R-E-E-S. And I thought I might do some research on him. And then there's the uh, another Texas Bluebeard. Um, he was known as the Alligator Man of Elmendorf. I don't know if you've heard of him. Uh, but his name was Joe Ball. And he had like a um, kind of one of these bars on the side of the road near San Antonio. And he would hire these women, um, you know, that he would find and, you know, want ads and that sort of thing. And they'd come down there and uh, he'd probably have an affair with them and then they'd disappear. And as it would later turn out, uh, he had pet alligators. And uh, he would kill the women, apparently, and feed them to the alligators. And when the police, you know, went to investigate him, he shot himself in the heart and killed himself. So he seemed like uh, perhaps, a, you know, another person. Uh, but I am actually working on um, two books right now. One's called Murder by Mail, A Global History of the Letter Bomb. And um, uh, th that's been a fun book to research. I'm about halfway through that. And this summer I researched um, the relationship between uh, Judge Isaac Parker, the hanging judge at Fort Smith, Arkansas, and his executioner, which is a guy named George Maladon. 
And, um, you know, I've started work on a book, The Judge and the Executioner or The Judge and the Hangman, um, and seeing where that goes. Wow. So. Yeah. Do you ever get depressed? <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Yeah, I'm on the, yeah. I'm on the right meds. <laughs> yeah. yeah, modern medication. Um, now, so how do you um, interact with readers and stuff like that? Do you do social media a lot, or are you doing a website? Where do people find you? Well, to my detriment, I'm not, I haven't been doing a very good job of it. And, uh, you know, I, I'll go down to Austin or Houston and, you know, do a book signing at, you know, one of the more reputable bookstores, you know, if the book warranted, uh, you know, people's interest. Um, but, you know, I, I've left the marketing to mostly, uh, you know, my publishers and my different books. Because, uh, I have publishers in, in England and I've had, you know, books published in China and, uh, you know, Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they get marketed in those countries. Um, but I, I've been pretty lousy at marketing myself and, and my books. And I'm, tr- I'm going to make a website, I've decided, for this particular book. And I've already lined up some talks because it's just about to hit the bookstores this week. And, um, you know, I, I've just got to get better. In fact, maybe I can find it, uh, some information from you, from, from the best. <laughs> uh, how to mar- Yeah, how to there market. you go. Uh, you know, Dave's the marketer. He's oh, yeah. <laughs> But then yeah. I'll have to hit Dave yeah. up. Um, well, fantastic. Uh, how would, how would, did, I guess the pandemic, you, so it sounded like it was good for you. Oh, I loved the pandemic. It was great. I mean, for flying, you had your own personal jet. <laughs> uh, you know, I was actually, I, you know, didn't mind it at all. I mean, because I fly a lot and it never stopped me from flying. And um, for teaching, you know, I didn't, you know, have to see the students in person, you know. And so I could teach online. I, I kind of like that as well. So, um, and I live a pretty solitary life except for playing poker. And, uh, you know, it, it was great except for poker. I should say we couldn't have our poker group together anymore. So we, uh, we put a game together on poker stars. So we all played together in one game online. But the pandemic, you know, it, it's my, my son called it the boomer remover. <laughs> He's eight, he's 18, you oh, see. And, uh, you know, so, uh, luckily nothing, uh, bad's happened to our family yet as far as that goes. And my mom got it and she's like 94 and she, you know, lived through it. Uh, well, so, yeah, um, you just never know, you know, uh, how it's like anything, you know, in life and, and what, what affects us and stuff like that. The next one will be worse, I can tell you. Well, that. yeah, I mean, and that'll be the Gen Z remover. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Just, you know. Uh, well, it's funny, but um, do, do you think that, um, but do things outside of, you see, you have to be pretty, um, how do I say this, you have to be pretty steady to write this kind of crime and murder and stuff like that. So, um, but do things around you get, involved in your writing and things like that like because there's some really nutty things going on in the world especially in the states and a lot of stuff that happens and tension and stress and all that does that sort of does that affect your writing at all or not not really nothing really bothers me to be honest with you and um you know and i live in texas you know you know and so you gotta you know look at that if if that doesn't bother you to begin with you know you've got a strong constitution um, and there's always strange crimes going on here. 
Um, I've been doing a lot of TV interviews about that escape from the uh, the prison transport bus. I don't know if you heard about it a few months ago. And yeah. he's a Mexican mafia guy, and he got out. He was an assassin for the cartels. Ends up killing a, fa- a grandfather and his four grandchildren in their house. And um, and that happened not far, you know, from uh, from here. Uh, but you, you're always hearing about crime, gunfights in Houston and so forth. And I've had students that um, were homicide cops, and they would take me to homicides in Houston if I wanted. And <laughs> so, you know, for you know, a little entertainment on a full moon, you know, perfect night on a weekend, let's go out. Well, the funny thing is, too, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I just, people that I've met before, and they'll say they don't like anybody who's morbid, and I try and sell myself as being someone who's not that morbid, you know. Um, and eventually, I end up bringing them to the dark side to enjoy the stuff that I enjoy. Great. You got any bodies in your basement or anything going on? <laughs> I've been asked that before. But yeah. The basement's been filled in. <laughs> so you're saying we'll never know. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Okay, so uh, now, do, do you have a website then or not? No, I don't have a website. Okay, so we'll have your book up so people can find you with one click. And, uh, you know, what more can we say? It's been uh, great talking to you and about your new book, and uh, and uh, we wish you the best. Uh, the book is called Man with a Killer Smile. And uh, the guest, the author, Mitchell P. Roth. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Mitchell. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.